What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. On the show today, we've got a very interesting friend, Mark Reading. Everything goes wrong in Special Forces exactly as it does in the rest of the Army. You know, they say that... You know, a planet only lasts a certain amount of time in a, in, a, in a confrontation or in an emergency. And I think that's the same in corporate, actually, is that when you've got all these plans and then when, when something goes wrong, they don't stand up to uh, when they get stress tested uh, quite often. And, that, uh, and I think that's exactly the same with special forces. So special forces becomes the word special, I think, is how you get out of this. Uh, and that's down to people. Uh, and I think it's people in whatever, whatever line you're in. It, it, it's about people. Because um, when it all goes wrong, <laughs> that's it. What, what are we going to do to change this situation? This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview rocket scientists, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. If you like what you hear, we're also going to be releasing exclusive bonus materials like PDF checklists, reports, and presentations, but only for members of the collective. If you're interested in those, as of this recording, you can still join for free on the Ideation Collective website, which is iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. Also, before getting rolling, we want to invite you to consider helping the charity our founders started called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the United States and abroad. One of our foreign projects we're working on right now is helping to build an aftercare orphanage in Cusco, Peru. To learn more about that, please come to the Child Rescue section on our website, iCollective.co slash Child Rescue. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. On the show today, we've got a very interesting friend, Mark Reading. Mark, thanks for being on the show. Welcome, Jess. Glad to be here. So, Mark, you got 11 years in the British Army, regular Army. Then you go to you go to Special Forces and, and another dozen years in uh, 22 SAS. Um, you've got, you know, decade and a half. Um, doing security work with one of the the larger uh, extractive industries in the oil business around the world. You're an entrepreneur in Africa. You've got a, a really entertaining blog these days. Um, tell us uh, tell us a bit about how you got your uh, got your start in Africa. Oh, I've worked Africa quite a lot. Probably more continent, more on that continent than any other. Uh, mostly through special forces, uh, we would. Uh, do certain tasks, support to British embassies in, in times of trouble or evacuations of, of, of our own nationals, Europeans, uh, at times of stress. Uh, Angola in uh, the early 90s was one example. Uh, and so a lot of work around Africa, uh, a lot of exercises in Africa, some operations in Africa. And then in the oil sector, going back into Africa in, in various places, I spent a number of years in, in, in Sudan. Total of four there uh, as a security manager. My first job out of the military, Algeria, Nigeria, many other countries in Africa, 
which then really a bit of a circuitous route, but then that took me to where I am now in Sierra Leone. <laughs> and now your company there, uh, Terra Nova Solutions, and we'll put a link to it on your on your page on Ideation Collective. We'll put a link to it. Um, when we were talking earlier before the show, you were talking about how you felt like you know your years in special forces it 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 almost trains you to see opportunity. And so when you're flying around the world keeping employees safe from the uh, from talisman, that you felt like you just you saw things when you were out and about. Is that is that really the impetus of, of Terra Nova, or where did Terra Nova come from? Uh, Terra Nova sort of said I was I came out of the security. I did, uh, let me think. Uh, Twelve years on the security side with Talisman, a Canadian oil company. Uh, three four year stints. Four years country security manager in, in Sudan. Four years as the international guy going around troubleshooting and setting up new country entries around the world. That that was pretty exciting. Then four years in the in the corporate role in Calgary when we first met. And then out of the business, uh, and in as two years as the country manager in, in Sierra Leone, so the new country entry process, setting up to do a, a drilling operation 50 miles offshore. Uh, and I think it was when I was drilling that well, um, obviously the focus is on doing it safely, uh, a backdrop of, of many moving parts, one of which was the election, which are always... Uh, testing times in, in West African nations, these elections, because they're, they're, they're closely fought. Uh, that was going on at the same time, and we were on focus to drill this this well and want to keep it on time, on budget. Uh, you've got a drill ship that at that time was charging out $1.2 million a day, standby rates of 600000 a day. So if you don't have everything right, whether it's the helicopters, the boats, the supply vessels, uh, all those moving parts, then you're just going to add to the days that you drill and, and the time and, and the expense. While we were doing that, Sierra Leone is a very poor country. Uh, you can't operate from there because the infrastructure is so poor. So you end up operating uh, from another country. And the, and the closest country that we could operate from that had the facilities was Ghana, in southern Ghana, a place called Takaradi. So we drilled the, the well from there. So every day you've got supply vessels bringing everything that you need to drill the well. And that would be from the big stuff, like the wellhead, the, the pipe, down to apples and bananas and, and bottles of water. And you thought, oh, there's opportunity in there to do this more efficiently. And there's, there were many companies drilling there at the time, Chevron from the States, Anadarko from the States as well. Um, and you thought, there must be a better way of doing this. Um, yeah, so no, so, and just to give the rest of us a, a concept, how, how many nautical miles is that? Uh, the supply chain was just over 700 nautical miles uh, every day. So it was about a three, four-day sail, depending on the vessel. So you've got these supply vessels. You keep one at the at the, at the the well all of the time to keep the local fishermen away and things like that. So you have like an exclusion zone of about 500 metres around the well, mostly for, for safety purposes. Um, so you've got one there. You've got one loading up and, and two in transit. And you've got helicopters as well. So all of that. Is, is this puzzle to get this um, to, to get this this well done? And you know, I was thinking you could set up a sh uh, supply base somewhere else. And if and really, I I did think at the time that why are we taking all this fruit and water and, and the most basic things when all that stuff should be coming from Sierra Leone? And so you thought there was a lot of opportunity for local entrepreneurs and start looking for links as to how the oil industry could be supported differently in the better, uh, you know, better in the future, but would also benefit local companies. 
And so um, if I remember right, correct me here, uh, the the company you were working for decided to make a change just corporate strategy wise and was was pulling out of West Africa and you decided to stay or tell, tell me how that transition happened. Uh, we, we drilled the well, unfortunately, and we did it on, I must say, drilled it on time and on budget. Uh, I had no influence over where X marks the spot and it was, a, it was a dry hole. But you're drilling, this is wildcat exploration in countries that don't have oil. So you, you drilled that one, at, I think, a 23% chance of success. So at the end of that, it was decision time for the company whether you sink another $75 million in with a little bit more data and maybe you can get that 23% of uh, chance of success higher and, and the more you drill and the more data you get and your chance of success increase and you liaise with the other companies are doing the same and you've got something to trade uh, or or exit now this coincided with a downturn the downturn that we're now seeing actually this was the start of it at the end of 2013 early 2014 that the price was coming off historic highs of over $100 a barrel and had been consistently there for some time was now starting to fall and we started to see, you didn't know it at the time, but you're starting to see the cycle that we're in firmly entrenched in now, two years later. So the company were looking for another position for me. Uh, this council was gonna go to Indonesia, uh, which I'd worked before, uh, and also maybe Kurdistan, which I'd set up a few years earlier. To myself, I'm thinking in the background of all this opportunity that we've spoken of briefly, this might be the perfect chance to step off. But when, you were, when you're working in corporate, you just don't leave, especially mm -hmm. after 40 years. Uh, you want a soft landing when you leave, and you want, a, obviously, the package uh, <laughs> that you know, you've built up, and they are entitled. <laughs> sure, uh, sure. So it's a, it's a question of negotiating your exit without asking for an exit. It's a game Nuance. of chess. Yeah, it's, it, yeah it's, it's a game of chess. Um, so you get the best of what you can have and you're fair to the company and you give them, you know, it's all, it's all of that. And then, um, these other, I wasn't marketing myself too strongly and, uh, was prepared to go. And, um, so I got my package and invested that into Terra Nova solutions. And here we are two years later. Well, um, you know, Sounds like like uh, many of your other Canadian friends, I uh, I live partially vicariously through your blog. Now now that you uh, you're running all over and, and you give us your monthly update on your adventures, what was the impetus of starting the blog? Uh, the blog number one. Um, Sierra Leone is a very small country and um, yeah, population of six million. And even if you put the two neighbours together, uh, Guinea and Liberia, that gives a, a a total population of the three countries. Now, of course, that was the three countries, uh, maybe we can talk about that later, that affected by Ebola. So six months after starting this new enterprise, the, the Ebola crisis is on us, and that, that wasn't any business plan. Um, so I realized from an early, uh, an early point is that we needed to expand beyond Sierra Leone. It's just too small and, and almost expand behind, beyond Guinea and Liberia into a wider piece of the Gulf of Guinea. So I was doing these early trips. Uh, the pressure at the start really wasn't so much on revenue generation, was building the networks, building the foundations, uh, my staff, uh, the infrastructure, a small footprint, small infrastructure that you needed. And the very first trip I did was down to Liberia. So I went down to Liberia. And uh, quite often, if I'm in a new city, 
I do like to run early in the morning, um, about six, just as the city's waking up. You don't know it so well. You'd, we'd arrived the day before. I went with a friend. We'd, we'd arrived the day before. And just some funny stuff happened this day. We, we'd hired a, a local vehicle and a, and a driver called Benson. And uh, Benson was driving us around. And Benson was a funny guy. And we got stopped by the police going down a, a one-way street the wrong way. Benson refused to give up his driving license because then the police have got them. They've got a grip on them. and They won't get their license back. And he ignores the police. We go through a police checkpoint. The police guy jumps on a, on a, a motorcycle taxi and chases after us through the streets. And it was just, it was just, it was just surreal. Um, well, and on this blog post, you've got a picture of what those streets look like. They're not, they're not these, they're not these like cleared out multi-lane <laughs> straightaways. Yeah. So it was, it was just, it was, it was, yeah, it was like a virtual video game. A lot of those West African capitals. So we, we, we do all of that. And then um, the next morning I'm, I'm going to go for my run. So we're staying at a hotel just down on the seafront in Liberia, uh, a place called the Mamba Point. So I come out of there, don't know, and it's a great way of learning the city, of course. When you're new in a, uh, in a city, you, you don't know it well. Drove, driven around a little bit the day before. Now's your time to go out. You might see that little restaurant, what's in the local neighborhood. A bit of a security thing as well that we always did. You get to, you're better off learning it on foot than, than in a vehicle. So I'm out there jogging the next day and, it was just one of those runs where it was it was uplifting. The city was waking up. Um, I you get a, a great feel for the city as it wakes up, uh, particularly a new city. And I ran past the American Embassy, which I thought was the most secure, impressive building in Monrovia. Um, and I'm running down Benson Street. Uh, Benson, the driver, as well from the from the day before. Um, you had all the street cleaners out in their blue coveralls. There was just a lot of there were a lot of smells. There were a lot of sights. Uh, there was a little bit of interaction with the local people. There's the virtual video game of swerving taxi doors opening and you know people shouting at you. And I think what capped it off when I came in from that run back into the Mamba Point, um, I heard this voice uh, from from um, across the road. Now one of the things they call you as a mark of respect in Liberia. If you're a little bit older than the person or, or, or they see you in a senior position, they, they call you Pappy. And um, as I'm turning in, and I didn't expect him to be there. And it's Benson. And he sat across on a little three-legged stool across from the entrance into Mamba Point. And I hear this voice, Pappy. And I just looked across and there's Benson waving at me. I get back in the hotel. I'm telling my friend this at breakfast. I'm, I've got to tell my I've got to tell my family and friends about this. It's, you know, it's, it's, this has been quite a funny experience, just just doing this and what had happened the day before. And then what sealed the deal, I still wasn't convinced about a blog. I've never written a blog before. And the next day we fly back, it's just a two-day trip, fly back to Freetown um, on a boat. On a boat coming across the estuary, um, the airport in Freetown, uh, Lungi Airport, is, is is separated from the mainland by an estuary, about nine nine mile piece of water. And we're coming across on a like a water taxi, and we get halfway across, going about twenty knots, and then we hit a sandbank that no one even knew was there. So we go from twenty knots to zero knots in you know in a heartbeat, and everybody just leaves their seats and flies forward about three or four seats, hitting their heads on the bulkhead. I was wedged in by this this big African manor. Uh, I was going nowhere. I was lucky. So I was wedged in there. I saw, I saw my colleague come flying past. And, and then the boat tilted onto the sandbank to, on the left. I'm sat on the left-hand seat, and, and she's on top of me. And um, we got back, and you think, 
you know, what a 48 hours it was. So then I thought, right, I'm going to write about this. Uh, I found out what a blog was and how to write one and um, uh, sent it to family and friends. Uh, and then gradually, you know, it, it expanded from there. Yeah. Well, um, you know, anybody who might be walking the dog or something not in front of the computer, listen to this on your podcast. The blog is roadrunnertns.blogspot.com. And we'll put a link to it on Mark's page on Ideation Collective. But uh, I, I love from that post the photo of Gold's Gym. Like you just don't expect to see Gold's Gym over there. Yeah. <laughs> a, little bit, a little bit of a different Gold's Gym than you might expect. Of course, that's the thing, Jess, is when, when you go for this, you, 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 know, you take smartphone with you um, because, you, you know, you want to record the route, um, take a few photographs. No, photographs just remind you, you ran down this street, ran down that street, headed north. For the, for the, for the readers of the blog, I, I want them to feel that they're running on my shoulder. You know, they're, they're next to me. So they're seeing what I'm seeing. They're smelling what I'm smelling and they're, they're seeing, you know, in, in the interaction there. So uh, try to make it virtual. And then I, I get some comments that people say they actually feel that they're, they're dodging around the street of, you know, wherever. And, um, and coming back along the beach on that run, yeah, there, there was Gold's Gym, which was looked like three garden sheds. Um, With the words together. Gold's Gym spray painted on the yeah, door. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't think that was, uh, yeah, I don't think it was a real one. Um, well, you know, you think about this life you've lived, um, but both, um, with 22 SAS and, and all around the world, uh, for talisman. Um, how do you think that prepared for you for, for, um, you know, the uncertain times during, during the Ebola crisis? I mean, I felt like I got better information from your blog than from CNN. What, what was that like? Uh, I, I, I was, I have to be honest with you, Jess, I was like everybody else when, when Ebola came, uh, uncertain, afraid. Uh, actually, I was in Guinea when I have a contact in Guinea who's a, like a local journalist, and they're always good guys to know local journalists. Um, they, they don't get paid well. They tend to do activities on the side. Uh, they may help me with some vetting and due diligence tasks or they act as drivers to pick you across the border and things like that. So these, these guys are really good guys to know. And so I had my guy from Guinea doing it and he was getting calls and he, he was a stringer for uh, China news agency, Al Jazeera, Associated Press, a number. And um, he's getting calls about this Ebola. I mean, this was March, 2014. And this is really when it started to take hold a little bit in the, in the forests of Southeast Guinea, uh, which is bordered with Sierra Leone. And, um, he didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it was. And they wanted to go. They wanted him to go and interview uh, somebody from UNICEF to, to, to find out more about this, this, this new thing, Ebola. So I remember going back and looking it up on the website and realized Ebola was a, a river in Congo uh, where this, this disease first started in the 1970s, the river Ebola. Um, and that's how it, that's how it got its name. And um, uh, came back to Sierra Leone and it still felt, almost like a false war. You, have, you, have, you get this sometimes in, in, in conflict even where you're in conflict, but there's no enemy and there's no, nothing you can see. And uh, is it real? Uh, and then really, I suppose, you know, it was like everybody else when it, um, when it started. Now I remember, actually this is quite a good timeline really, because in June, 2014, many people remember watching the, uh, the, the football world cup or the soccer world cup. And the final, but I think it was, was it, uh, Argentina and Brazil. And I watched that game 
there was Ebola. Ebola was in the background, but there were no precautions. There was no, it was out far in the east of, uh, of Sierra Leone. You know, been a few cases. It was just starting to come into our our conscious, if you like. And and two months before the World Cup final, the first internationally branded hotel in Sierra Leone's history had opened the Radisson, the Radisson Blue. And I remember sitting in there that night, standing, it was standing room only. Uh, the beer is quite expensive in the Radisson Blue. So you're looking at uh, locally trained staff. You're looking at the middle classes in Sierra Leone. You're looking at the aspirational people, the, the expatriates. And it's packed, you know, packed to the gunnels of people in there. You're seeing trays go with drinks and um, pizzas flying out the kitchen. Uh, everybody engrossed in, in the final, cheering on one of the two sides. And and I remember that day looking at hope for Sierra Leone. It, it, this, you know, this was like symbolic. I thought this, this is great. This is great. And then I was in that hotel six weeks later. Um, every room was empty. Uh, there was about two people in the hotel. I'd gone there for a business meeting. Three or four rooms let only. All the staff hanging around. He thought, what a change from six weeks earlier to that point. So... How did it pre prepare me for or my, my 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 service life and everything else prepare me for that? Um, well, you realised that business was going to collapse, and, and you, for the first time, you realised this was going to be serious. In the same week as I refer to about a handful of people in this hotel, uh, all the international flights were cancelled in the same week. So British Airways cancelled their flights, Air France, uh, Kenya Airways, the others, and Freetown had gone from. Yeah, 49 flights a week, international flights a week, landed at Freetown to four. Um, same for the other two countries involved, Guinea and Liberia. So now you knew it, it was serious. Um, I went on holiday that was, had been booked for a year uh, to Miami and, uh, and in, down in Florida, Naples in Florida. We go there most years. And uh, so it was a good thing about what was going on. Of course, now the, the media had got hold of it. The NGOs hadn't started to arrive at this point. And the country was preparing for a four-day lockdown to, to, to break the back of this disease um, early on, a four-day lockdown where everybody stays in their homes. My holiday finishes, and there's a, there's a gap of about three days before this four-day uh, four lockdown starts. And uh, I knew I had to go back. So I booked myself. There was a ho hotel special at the same hotel that I've mentioned, the Radisson Hotel. So I got back, and uh, they had a special deal on because there was no one around. Everybody, everybody was going out. The plane I came in on, this is where I'm, I think this is the point I'm coming to, Jess, is that when everybody's coming out, it's sometimes a good time to go in. And so the plane I get off, it's, it's an Airbus, um, probably 250 seater. And I kid you not, there's about a dozen of us on there. Uh, wow. And the airport is packed with people trying to get on this plane to get out um so i come i, I come in and book myself into the radisson for the four-day lockdown um and eventually end up getting quite a bit of business out of it um i got some you know contracts in guinea and liberia which really leveraged both the some of the supply chain issues we were talking about earlier on on the oil side of it but plus your military experience uh, as well um you put all that together and you were people that could help these first crisis people and these first ngos um coming in uh, to provide them some assistance and some services and knowing the ground and things like that so that's how really the ebola started in sierra leone and how the ebola you know started for me 
And, and, you know, I think for a lot of people listening, it's easy to wonder, like, you know, going back to the country, what kind of precautions did you take to, to not get Ebola yourself? Uh, at the start, we, we still didn't have a great deal of knowledge. It was only after a while. And I think a lot of this was perpetuated by the media. The media was a double-edged sword in all of this. I thought the media did a great job in raising uh, awareness. Um, you had, uh, but 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 over the over the top reporting as well, and, and you just believe that people were just going to start bleeding from every or, orifice from nowhere in the middle of the street, and anybody who touched this corpse, or anybody, um, and, and and cities were going to be wiped out. Potentially, countries were going to be wiped out. It, the level of reporting, got, but. That raised the awareness, which started triggering all of the international aid that these countries desperately needed to mobilize uh, and get in. So precautions became uh, – you quickly realize, and this is another thing from my military experience, sometimes when you're in a situation in the early days, particularly when there's the fear of the unknown, is quite often it's – more scary when you're on the outside looking in than on the inside looking out. Um, and I would say that the, the crisis officially finished about a month ago, and you, you'll have noticed on the international media that Sierra Leone was uh, declared all clear. Um, so it wasn't as bad on the ground as, as what was what people uh, were were indicating. So the day to day, and I wrote about this in some of the blogs. The blogs became less about joking, messing around and these early morning runs and, and playing it for laughs, if you like, um, to more the serious nature of trying to mobilize and tell people what was really happening on the ground. So the joke stopped for a while and the lighthearted approach stopped and it became serious on this. And, you know, on a typical day, you could end up, you know, washing your hands in chlorine uh, 15 times a day, your hands permanently smell of, uh, of chlorine you had your temperature taken 15 to 20 times a day and you at first again that fear of the unknown you were so worried that every time you had your temperature taken of course if it's up by one degree or you push up towards 40 uh so you get to high 30s 40 which could be anything else it could just be a high temperature it, it could be malaria which is uh you know one of the biggest killers in west africa or it could be the early signs of, um, uh, you know, Ebola. Uh, so you took all the precautions that, that everybody else did, and you, you built barriers. So I, I rent an office in, in 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 other offices. So we set up a barrier on on the main gate, which uh, filtered all visitors, took everybody's temperature. Uh, everybody had to wash hands with chlorine, and then we'd have another barrier barrier. Inside a barrier, our office door, doing the, the, the same procedures again. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been to West Africa, but the, the handshakes. Just in Nigeria, yeah. Well, you'll you'll know from some of the handshakes and the way the greetings and the hugs. It, 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 whereas Westerners, we tend to respect other people's personal space <laughs> uh, and the proximity that we are to someone when we're talking to them. And, and of course, the uh, the handshakes in Sierra Leone are very creative and thumb locking and the fingers and the rainfall and all, you know, everybody's like a rapper. And, um, and that's a day, that's a daily routine, all of that. Uh, and all that stopped. So the physical contact, uh, you know, stopped altogether. I'd still go out for runs and things like that, but 
you were just <laughs> in the early days, you just worried about bumping into anybody um, and things like that. So, yeah, a lot, a lot of precautions and a lot of common sense. Now, you know, I, I was fascinated when I was over there. I think I had some preconceived notions that it would feel more like uh, when I was in China and people kind of kept to themselves and, and were a bit more skeptical of anybody else. And when I was over there, I just couldn't believe how warm and welcoming everyone was. Has it? Do you feel like it's returned to that type of feeling? or? Uh, the handshakes are back, put it that way. Um, <laughs> and, and all of that. So, no, no it's, I think it never, it, it never lost that. Um, obviously... You know, we we had a over six month period of the crisis where you know restaurants are closed at six o'clock at night, all the shops are closed at six o'clock at night. Uh, there was about three or four lockdowns during the during the course of the uh, the crisis, and so the interaction and, and the social gatherings had all stopped. Uh, the Friday night expat thing, which happens all around the world, you know, that had all stopped. Um, but I, from the from a local perspective, um, I think that. Uh, the, the warmth was still there. Uh, they couldn't demonstrate it uh, as much. Uh, but I, I think now, yeah, things are, are you know, slowly returning to normal, I would say. Yeah. Well, um, shifting gears a bit here, um, thinking about uh, something we were talking about earlier. When you were in the military, you're, you're in the British Army, and you're you're doing your job and you're realizing that you know, you could probably actually do your boss's job. And there's this, there's this um, kind of, there's this opportunity for progression. And then it, it goes to the next thing and the next thing, it almost becomes a habit of progression. Um, what, what did that look like when you're, when you're looking at 22 SAS? I mean, I, I, you know, we have different friends here on the show, whether they're SEALs or Green Berets or Delta Force. And, you know, everybody likes to talk a lot of trash about everybody. Um, and they're certainly not kind about other countries, special forces units, but I will say consistently the one that I get grudging respect from is is 22 SAS. Uh, well, I, I would say the same. We did a lot of exercises with SEAL Team 6, uh, Delta. <coughs> you know, great guys, all of them. Uh, I think we did some great exercises. You know, they'd come across an exercise in the UK. Uh, we'd exercise in the States. Uh, and the mutual respect was very strong, strong, strong bonds, which existed in, in my day. And, you know, I know, uh, you know, still there today with what's going on in the world. Uh, and of course, yeah, but it, but it tends to be the ones that are closer to you that gets the most of the bruising. So <laughs> in the SAS case, it would be uh, our sisters, which would be the closest to the SEALs, I suppose, in American terms, would be the SBS and, um, you know, which is a special boat service. We call them the shaky boat service. Um, <laughs> so you get your, all, all of that, you know, that, that rivalry, but, I suppose when you're you're in the military, you within the S, within the SAS it, it, it's you know it's built on a, an ethos of, of, of four things and um, humor and humility is one of them, but classlessness is another. But you've also got the unrelenting pursuit of excellence, so you you have to improve and you're, you're taught to work on weaknesses. So a lot of people will always like to work on strength. I think we all do that, whether you're, you're footballers, ice hockey players, you know, whatever you are, there'll be things that you're, you're, you're very good at, uh, but there'll be a weakness. You, you might have a weakness with your left foot or something like that if you're a footballer. Um, and you almost stopped in doing, well, you, you can continue to do the things that you're good at, but you had to practice and spend more time working on weaknesses. Um, so I always remember 
the day that uh, we got badged. And um, that, that's another, you, you finish the six month process you're in. Uh, and then they bring in the longest serving guy who, who, who mm. uh, you know, I think he served back with Moses. This guy was old. He'd been around a long time. And he's got the big pile of berries on the, you know, your berries now that you're, you're going to wear for the first time on, on his desk. And he just throws them out like Frisbees and you catch them or catch somebody else's and pass it to them. And then he wants to tell you that you've achieved nothing. And it, so it's straight back down to earth. All, <laughs> all you've done is you've done six months training. You pass that. And it starts from now. And, um, and I remember, I know we're going to talk about books today. And, uh, and, and, and this guy didn't give a long speech. And it was never long on speeches. It's about action as opposed to words. And the guy said, I'll give you one piece of advice. Well, apart from, you know, you, you don't know anything yet, which we didn't. Um, you, you haven't achieved anything yet. This is the start of a, a journey. And um, he said, he said, read. And he said, the benefactors of this regiment, uh, people from the past and, and, and donations that have been received, have gone to build this first class library. And this first class library is, is stacked with books. Go in there, get a book, read it, take it back and then get another book and read what your fathers did, your forefathers did and learn from, from previous, previous operations um, around the world, and that, that will stand you in good stead. He said, that's my advice, and uh, it, it was good advice. Um, any, any titles stick out to you as, as ones that have, have really stuck with you over time, of um, you know, ones that had a big impact on you, any books? Oh, several. Um, you know, I've, I've tried. I always, I don't know, I think a lot of people listening to this may think, you're always under pressure to read good books, and um, but not a lot of people really read them. I think a lot of people say they've read them, <laughs> um, and, I, and I've tried. I've, I've, I've tried, and my test normally is to get to page fifty. And if I get to page fifty, I'm in, and, and then I'm away. Um, so I did try to read good books, but books in that library that that's, that I did read all the way through, and they stuck with me. Um, one in particular, I guess, and that was the Jungle is Neutral. Um, the Jungle is Neutral, I think it's out of print now, and it was written in 1946, but you can still get copies of it. And um, written by a fellow called Freddie Spencer Chapman. And this guy had been in, the Malaysia, in Malaysia during the war and had linked up with uh, uh, the Chinese guerrillas and, and, and fought behind the Japanese lines for about three years. And really the book, The Jungle is Neutral, is all about how he did it. And, and how he, he changed his way of thinking. And, and people still think the jungle is the enemy. And, of course, part of the selection process within Special Forces, U.S. as well, is the reason the jungle is selected uh, as a, a selector of men, if you like, is, uh, is it's very hard and it's, it's the enemy itself. And he, he, he turned that thinking on his head and, and he wrote about his experiences and it became a must-to-read in, in the same way, I suppose, uh, seven pillars of wisdom, more for uh, Lawrence of Arabia type stuff for for the desert, which gets a big following at Staff College and and things like that. But no, I'd say the best one, uh, the jungle is neutral. Well, that's great. We'll have to see if we can't hunt down some links to it on the internet here. Um, well, thinking about thinking about even selection, um, when you think about the attrition rate, how many guys don't make it? Uh, in, in your opinion, what, what's, I mean, these guys are all in good shape that are even allowed to come to selection. 
what what is the difference? What's going through the minds of the guys that quit versus the guys that endure? In your estimation. Um. Well, I think everybody everybody applies, of course, is a is a is a professional soldier, um, and it, it, it's not for everybody. It, it's it, it's arduous. It, it, it's tough. You may have 170 turn up on selection, two of those a year, of which the pass rate is about 10%. Um, some guys are unlucky; they get injured. Some guys come to the realization uh, that it, that that is it, it's, it's not for them. And they can VW, uh, voluntary withdraw any time, lay your kit out on your bed and go. And that's where the competition starts, though, Jess, because you're one of those 170. And every guy that lays his kit out and goes home, that's increased your chances. Um, and so yeah, there's no trying to talk them into stay. And that's the difference, I suppose, between the regular army. The regular army, uh, you're always in a unit that's linked to bigger units. So you, you're a section which is a part of a platoon, and the platoon's got three of them in, in a company. Then you've got three of those in a, in, a, in a battalion plus some support elements. Then you've got three battalions in a brigade, and so it goes all the way up. So a lot of these um, overlapping, interlocking things. Now, whereas when you go into special forces, it may be just four people by themselves, so you don't have the other section, the other platoon, the other... Uh, and so that realisation for people... Uh, when they've never worked in anything smaller than a than a rifle company, which would typically be ninety to a hundred soldiers, that, that maybe it's not for them, even though they're they're, they're good soldiers. Um, now they don't put a pass rate on it, so but you know typically it could be around about ten percent that they say we'll take nobody if the standard's not right, we'll take nobody, um, and if this is a particularly good selection, then we'll take more, so we'll take a, a higher pass rate. But you could say it averages out. Um, you know, at that level. Interesting. Well, think, thinking about your career and and all the different experiences, uh, is there anybody that you feel like really set the example for you of how to treat others? I don't think it would be a name as such. Um, I think it was when I joined the army at sixteen, which is impossible now um, to leave school at sixteen and join the army straight away, get educated in the army. Um, I think it was those those first. I mean, I think your first people when when you, when you leave from being a civilian to become a soldier, it, and this and you realise now the importance of those guys and the responsibility that they carry is those first training instructors. I, I had brilliant instructors. Mm. Um, uh, three three sergeants were our instructors in our platoon. Uh, they were great. They were inspirational. You know, set the example never resorted to uh, bullying their experienced soldiers, you know, get the best out of you. Um, and you know, it was the way that they, that they they coaxed us along, but always stayed with me. And I, you know, when you saw in, inexperienced instructors, and I think this, this, this can go into the corporate world, uh, this can go into, into, into many worlds, in that, uh, you know, an experienced guy will, will stop you at some point and say, Right, you, you're doing well. You're you're working hard. There's a number of things you're doing wrong. What I want you to do is I want you to concentrate on these three things, and we'll get those right. Whereas you see the the inexperienced guy, uh, who you know if he's watching a 40 minute lesson, spends longer than 40 minutes debriefing it. Um, he wants these inexperienced guys to know how much he knows, 
impart his knowledge onto them. And of course, he's telling telling them a hundred things they're doing wrong. They come away confused. I was lucky that I I had really good guys. And then they, and I think they always, another thing that they, they taught me early on when I was 16, 17 was about the will to win. Um, and I remember an early, first weekend in the, in the field as, as, as a young soldier. So it was your first night under stars and they don't go hard. You know, they teach you how to put a shelter up, how to cook your, your army rations. We sit around a bonfire at night. Um, and they give us one beer each because we're only we're 17 <laughs> and you get one beer each to drink and then you stand up for five minutes talk about yourself and tell a joke and you get this camaraderie this team bonding the next morning you get up early they teach you how to organize yourself in the field when you've been in the army six days then they got some ropes and some drums and they're going to set us at a task to only one man's allowed in the water we've got to get you and all of this stuff across the other side and you have some fun doing that people falling off the ropes and things like that but the lesson came we were about three miles from our camp in a local wood and then so the next day they said we're going to run back now you've got all this equipment you, you don't even really know how to assemble it properly and it's water bottles falling off your belt uh, a waterproof thing falling out of your bag and so we look like fred carno's army coming up the road trying to hold all this stuff and you know completely unprofessional amateurish uh you're all over the place and then um this one sergeant sergeant masterton he, he was a big impression uh he was in his late 30s you know i'm 16 17 uh so he's you know that when you're that age the age group difference seems absolutely huge um and um and uh it was pouring rain when we finished and he didn't have to say anything it was a man of few words uh we you knew yourself that well, I've got to learn how to put this equipment. I'm not listening. I'm not putting this equipment together properly. I need to get with other guys that know how to do this better and, and you know, I've got to start working as a team and all of that. And then, of course, some guys did well. And to the guys that did well, he said, right, you guys go and take a hot shower. And we when you had so much hot water in these, these old-fashioned shower blocks, you guys go and take a hot shower. The rest of us kept out there in the rain for about 45 minutes, having a think about our misery and how bad we were. And then he just told us in, in a few lines, he said, there's winners and losers. And he said, make sure next time you do this, you're with those, you're a winner. And, um, and that, that's always stayed with me. So I think those first in, and, you know, later on in my army career, I became a, a recruit instructor myself. Uh, and of course, that's the other responsibility. They pass those good lessons on to you without actually passing lessons on, you know, you, you extract it from them and they're not telling you what they're doing. Um, you, You've got to work that out for yourself. And then you know, a few years later, when you're an instructor taking these raw recruits and they've got to turn them into soldiers, then so those first guys are, are, are absolutely crucial. So some of those guys, yeah, fantastic. Hmm. Um, thanks for sharing that. Uh, you know, let's talk a little about a little later on in, in your military time. Um, you know, 22 SAS is, is known around the world as one of the most you know, one of the premier organizations in existence. Um, you think about the culture of like progression and mastering your, you know, mastering your craft. Um, can you tell us at all about the culture or, or the positive peer pressure or just any of the mindset of, you know, the rest of us who want to get better at our craft, anything of the way that guys did it there that, that might be a lesson for the rest of us? Uh, I think they were very big on honesty. 
uh, was, and really you knew yourself, you, you knew the standards in that pursuit of excellence. So you, you knew the standards and sometimes you didn't need anybody to tell you that improvement was necessary. You're not a good pistol shot. You're, you're weak at this. You're weak at that. Maybe your conditioning, your fitness, your upper body strength, whatever it might be, uh, your language skills. If, if, if that's what your, your skill is, your medical skills, you might be a demolitionist, whatever your and, and your insertion skill either, whether you're your your mountain troop, boat troop, air troop, you've got a lot of skills to master. And you're not gonna be brilliant at all of them. Maybe you're weak on doing Morse code um, and things like that. So but it creates that atmosphere, I think, in special forces. And I, and I think the word special is what I think about it. it we talked about the regular army. And the regular army is is very good and very professional. Um, you know, good, experienced soldiers. But the special forces, I think, everything goes wrong in special forces exactly as it does in the rest of the army. You know, they say that you know a planet only lasts a certain amount of time in a in a, in a confrontation or in an emergency. And I think that's the same in corporate. Actually, is that when you've got all these plans and then when when something goes wrong. They don't stand up to uh, when they get stress tested uh, quite often. And, that, uh, and I think that's exactly the same in special forces. So special forces becomes the word special, I think, is how you get out of this. Uh, and that's down to people. Uh, and I think it's people in whatever whatever line you're in. It, it, it's about people. Because um, when it all goes wrong, <laughs> that's it. What, what are we going to do to change this situation? Um, so... Not talking about combat now, but talking about, you know, in your training cycle and, and everything, you build that degree of honesty where, you know, people speak up and say, you know, what they've done wrong um, and, you know, what they're going to do to fix it. And so you had that you almost be the best you can be. Um, and then the army should be very, very good at uh, finding that hole for you um, or, or, or that role for you. And I think most armies around the world or professional armies are. So, you know, put, 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 you know, round pegs into round holes and, 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 and build this team. And um, so I, I think it's, if you're talking about sort of self-improvement, it, it's about honesty. And the main thing is to be honesty with yourself. You'll, you'll have, and I think when you've served in the army or special forces in particular, the camaraderie, and the friendships you develop are, are like second to none. And they, they will, they will stay with you for the rest of your life. Um, and I, and I like that just to when I lived in the army base, you, you know, the, the, the next door neighbor or whatever, you know, you'd be serving in a different squadron or away at different times doing different things, but you would talk over the fence or outside or, or, or drive or walk to work together. And the conversation would, would just flow. Um, and I think, I sometimes see people around the world I haven't seen for 10 years. And a recent example, when I was in Juba, um, watching one of the Rugby World Cup games in, in Juba, and there's a guy who recognised me that I hadn't seen for, I think it was about 12 years. And it was like we carried on from talking 12 years previously. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a weird thing. Whereas if, as a civilian, you've got a next-door neighbour, I mean, sometimes now you you would you'd struggle to spend five minutes talking now um, before the conversation got a little bit strained. Um, you're looking well. How are you doing? How, how's uh, how's Marjorie, your wife, and the children okay? 
and you're struggling past that. And, um, and, and the army is very, very different. So that, that self-improvement, that honesty and having that, that sense of camaraderie, um, in the fact, and, and it doesn't always, corporate can be good as well. Don't get me wrong. Uh, you know, very different, but the army's a 24 seven thing. Uh, whereas, well, no corporation really could survive these days working nine to five, but it's still, you know, very, very different. So I think a combination of those factors, um, you know, makes, make, makes you improve. And of course, that esprit de corps means things like not letting the, the side down, not letting the team down. So that's, that's another element as well. Um, so thinking about those principles, um, are there any exercises you've done or anything you do to try to bring that, you know, bring that feeling of not letting the team down to the teams that you've led in the corporate world, business, starting your own, everything like that? Um, well, I think in, I mean, working in the oil industry afterwards, you're working in some dangerous places. Um, sometimes quite fond of saying that I've been shot at nearly as many times in corporate as, as I was in the army, um, well, slightly different. And, uh, but, you know, we got into situations in Colombia, in, in situations in, uh, in, in other, in other places. Um, and, but now you're with civilians, um, and they're oil workers that they wasn't, you know, they shouldn't have to oil workers of today in some environments like Iraq and others are wearing body armor and helmets and driving around in armored vehicles. And who'd ever thought we'd see the day. You know, I remember saying many years ago in Sudan, when we were, were having landmines in the road, we had a helicopter shot at, um, that if we have to go to those levels of protection, should we be asking ourselves the question of whether we should be operating here in the, in the first place? So I think really about 15 to 20 years ago, the whole world started becoming more dangerous. And, and I think really that affects the oil industry. Um, so we had to come up with how we, uh, you know, how we develop that esprit de corps, how we, how do we develop that teamwork for what are essentially civilians, um, uh, you know, there to do a, to, there to do a job of work, um, not to be exposed to those things. And, um, and I think what we did was we did a lot of, um, uh, we, we, we put good leaders in with them. So again, we're back to it's individuals who, who set the example and who lead and when things go wrong and then we'd help those leaders and the country managers and things like that by holding sometimes quite realistic exercises. And we'd have to push them at first to do these things because everybody's always busy, but realistic scenarios for, for that environment. Um, and exercise them and, and, and put them under a little bit of stress and, 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 and teach and advise and um, cajole uh, to, to raise up and then, you know, praise them. And then, well, let's do another one in, in six months time. So in some of the environments where things went wrong, that they felt more able uh, to, to handle those situations. So, yeah, we used to work on that. Interesting. Um, I'm thinking, uh, you know, I'm thinking about, one time when we were having lunch and uh, I feel like you really set an example for me of like not thinking you're a big deal, but also not being uh, afraid to take responsibility to go solve big problems. I mean, you know, I remember you're talking about the hostage situation in Colombia that you went down on. Um, do you, do you have any advice for entrepreneurs today about dealing with the hard situations and taking it serious, but not taking ourselves too serious? Um, 
Yeah, I, I think so. You, I think you've, you know, if you're an entrepreneur and you, things will go wrong. And, um, and no matter how much you think about your playbook, I mean, you know, I, I described how you know, I've set this business up. I've taken my package from Talisman. And then five, six months later, you know, we're in an Ebola situation. Um, and so now it, you, you, you need to adjust. Um, and so I think you, you, you need to, well, you, of course, you've you got to hope that things don't go wrong, but invariably things, things will go wrong. And, uh, and I think, you know, when things go wrong, you, you, you stop, you, you, you know, you take a sharp intake of breath and, and you think about, you don't give up, never give up. Uh, and that will to win again and, and, and what you're going to do to change this situation around. Um, you know, you know, it's so important. The, the, the Columbia one, we had you know, 23 people kidnapped, subcontractors in the jungles of, of Colombia down to the border with, with, with Ecuador. Uh, and the last guy was released after 146, de- uh, 146 days, a married guy with two children. And his two children were about the same age as my two children. And I used to tell my children the names of his children and, and about, you know, what this, uh, what this, what the mother was going through and, and what we were doing. And so I got them involved in it. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, you know, you, you plan in advance. You, you can't believe that nothing's going to go wrong. Well, obviously most of my experience has been in, in oil and gas and we know the environments that we operate. So when that happened, we had good people. And I, I, I always remember actually, the well, which election was it, Jess, in, in in the states? The red telephone one was that the uh, Clinton Obama one, the first one. Uh, uh, I don't remember. Yeah, and it became about the who, who's going to pick up the red phone in the White House at night at four o'clock in the morning. Um, you know, the, you know, the it was, I think the argument was around the the experience to be commander in chief. Um, and, and, I, and I suppose in this case, in the oil and gas, it, it, it was quite similar in, in that, you know, we put good people on the ground because when things go wrong in, in those circumstances, there's no one can help you. So you're going to be by yourself for a period. We're going to do our best to get you some support and things like that. But when things start to go wrong, it snowballs. And that's another experience that, that I have. And all of a sudden the, the communications go down, the phones go down. Um, then you haven't got communications that you're going to rely on. And so it's that clarity of thought and thinking some of these things through in advance and having, uh, and having good leaders, whether they be corporate, military, whatever to think, right, let's stop, think, act, you know, let's get out of this situation as best we can. Yeah. Well, um, I'm thinking about that lunch where, uh, you know, you were giving us some really good advice at Child Rescue and, and we've always appreciated your support over the years. Um, thinking about Child Rescue, what what advice do you have for us to, you know, in our quest to get more people involved in, in rescuing children from child sex trafficking and getting them the kind of aftercare they need? I mean, it's something you've been generous about with your time. I mean, um, what was it about the issue that you decided to make time for us? Uh, well, I think... You made a mark on me, Jess. Um, I think I think that that lunch was in 2010, if I remember. If yeah, I remember correctly. That's about that, right. Yeah, I think it was, it was about the middle of 2000. It was a, it was a hot summer's day in Calgary, <laughs> and um, and we we talked a little bit about you know corporate and, and some of the stuff we've talked about today, but we also talked about what you were doing, and um, and I think I was quite taken with the 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 efforts that you were doing and 
which have, I think have you know grown substantially since you know we first talked about it five years ago. Um, you know, and in preparation for this, when we've been in, in contact recently, I've you know I've had a look at um, some of your work and your website and everything, and um, you know I'd like to take my hat off to you that you're doing a you know a fantastic job. Well, we certainly have a we certainly have a great team that that's that's working hard. We're lucky to have them. Um, but but you've seen so many things around the world, and um, and you've obviously been around the world. What what advice do you have for us in in spreading the word? What would you do if you were running Child Rescue to get the word out more? Um. Yeah, I mean it's it's one thing. I mean travel, I suppose. I mean it, you know the power of guys like yourself and. Your, your team, which you've just referenced, and um, is is going into some of these poorer countries. I think poverty drives a lot of this, um, and we know it happens in the developed countries as well. Of course, in the developed countries, your own country and, and, and Europe, it's because it's, it's, there's structure. It, it's it's far easier uh, to deal with. It's not it's not easy to deal with, but but less difficult, should we say? Um, we can imagine in the developing world where you know, children, uh, you know, we, we've provided from money raised in the blog, actually, some support to schools and things like that. And you see the children's vulnerability in poor environments probably more than any other. So I think that would be an effort to, whether it be in, mm. in South, South America, the Far East, in, in Africa, to maybe have people with, with, a, with a degree of training and the knowledge that you have you know, looking for those signs and advising, and, and sometimes it, you know, it, the, some of the support they need. Uh, you know, if you take a, a school in in West Africa, in, in, in numerous West African countries, uh, you know, it's two shifts a day in the same school. So children get up in the morning, uh, the first uh, at first light. The first thing they do is is, is walk to a, a water standpipe to fill the buckets to place on the heads to take the water back for the family before they go to school. Um, and then one set of kids will go to school normally seven in the morning until about one o'clock. And then the second, maybe 300 in a, four classrooms, and then exactly the same in the afternoon again. And then there's no electricity at night, so they, they can't try and study by candlelight. So the children on the streets, children exposed to um, uh, vulnerabilities, and there's lots of NGOs uh, out there in West Africa doing a, a great job of this, but you know, they lack resources. Uh, maybe in some cases they're well-meaning, maybe don't have the skills. Um, so organizations like yours and others, you know, at the coalface working some of these problems mm. would, be, would be, you know, would be good. No, it's, it's great advice. I'm thinking about the uh, the partner organization um, that invited us, this, this one that's gone down just over the last weekend here in Peru. They got the 36 victims out. Uh, I got invited to go visit their aftercare facility in a, in a different Latin American country and being there in person and seeing how happy the kids are. And they're just like my own children, but then also like seeing essentially the huts that they were going home to and, and the kind, the kind of uh, lifestyle they have instead of maybe what feels more intellectual or academic watching it at, on a video at home, being there was, was a, kind of a defining moment for me um, moving more from knowing it's real to feeling how real it is um, for their lives. So I think that's great advice. Um, you know, before we go here, uh, do you have any defining moments that you can think of that you think 
made the difference in your career or, or made the difference in who you became that a choice that would have gone the other way maybe you wouldn't have become who you became any any times like that stand out to you um i think we always that the those i mean i got hard to think of off the top of my head jess sure, but i think sure. there's always there is the fork in the road isn't it um, and I think it's that great qu- quote by uh, the, the American fellow who died recently, Yogi Berra. <laughs> um, you know about the, the I can't remember the exact quote, but it's, it is about that that fork in the road. Um, and I think all of us, no matter what career path we take or whatever, we come to those forks in the road where you know there's a decision to be made. And um, and of course, you know, you can look back sometimes and think. Well, if I'd have taken, you know, that fork instead of this one, then, uh, you know, it wouldn't have worked out as well or, or whatever. So I suppose I think I'm old school to a certain extent in that I do believe in a certain amount of uh, luck. I think luck plays a it's – an, it's an underrated commodity. And I think luck plays a – I think if you do all the right things, I think if you're a good person and um, you're you're optimistic, you're upbeat, you know, that's the the people I like. You, you, know, you gravitate towards – those type of people. Um, so uh, you, you think that, you know, luck, you know, I've been lucky a lot. Um, but then I suppose you could take a step back from that and think, well, you know, I know people who would say, well, you know, the harder you work, the luckier you get and all of those types of things. But I think, I think the luck plays a part and, and doing good things and, uh, you know, treating everybody decent and well and, and, and the same and, and, a, and a certain amount of humor and humility in there that uh, that generally you know you oh I, I don't know I, I think just that always just saying the army I don't use it so much in in, in corporate life because it's not true in corporate life I don't think I used to say that in the army everybody got as, as far pretty much as far as they should get of course you're going to have the odd guy in big organizations to get over promoted um and that can be dangerous. Uh, but generally speaking, you get as far as you get. If, you, if you're going to finish up as a sergeant, you think, yeah, that, that, yeah, that's, that guy is a good sergeant, but you know, he, he wouldn't go any higher. Or that guy's a warrant officer or that guy's a colonel. Um, the difference in corporate life is people way over promoted. Um, but with the, the consequences are not the same. Um, so, yeah, I think it's the fork in the road and having the right tools and, being a decent person hopefully that uh but life-defining moments um well i mean there's nothing i can put my finger on but there's always times when danger i suppose i I suppose there's been times when there's been danger moments without going into them but there's been danger and always when danger's finished then you always think about things um that could have turned out differently on another day or what happened to him could have happened to you. So I suppose they mm. become sort of like thought, thought provoking moments that, so danger points through a life. And, and that can take on many guises, of course, um, not just people shooting at you, but other things as well. And um, so they're, they're defining moments. And, uh, and I think after you've had a danger moment and that could be a battle with disease, it could be anything. Um, you quite often have those quiet words with yourself. Um, you're going to be a better, a better father, a better husband, a better what, whatever yeah. it may. Um, so uh, yeah. No, oh, thanks for sharing that. I uh, I do feel like um, 
I know I'm kind of putting words in your mouth here, but I feel like you set that example of consistency. And I think, uh, you know, if I kind of sort all that together, it sounds a little bit like what you're saying is, you know, the consistency of doing the right thing each time, not, not, not selectively. Um, yeah. Um, well, listen, any, any parting advice, you know, you think about up and commerce, you think about whether it's somebody that's innovating in an existing company or they're, they're trying to build their own or, or run a charity these days. Um, any just parting advice that you would have in general? I think don't, don't think about it too much. Um, I think that's always the big mistake I, I see. And, and it happens in, in all organizations. And I think if you, if you've got that dream, that you're going to set up a charity organization, you're going to set up a business, you're going to become an entrepreneur, you accept it's not going to be easy, but you have this dream that you want to do it, then stick with it. Find a way of making it work. Don't give up. I mean, I think some people are prone to giving up too early and then they blame everybody else for their, for their lack of success um, or all the, all the problems and all the roadblocks and obstacles are put in their way. I think if you've got this dream, and it, and it can be anything from a – from a modest dream uh, up to you know, something more substantial, you know, work hard at it, and uh, and, I, and I think success, however you quantify and measure success, uh, can come your way. But just don't give up if you really believe in what you're doing. And I think, and we used to say this in the security world. Just sorry, one last thing. You say yeah, in the security course. world that um, you. Know, if you're sat outside a hotel door, you know you're down the you're down the bottom of the food chain in security, and it's a, a celebrity or it's a, a head of state or, or whatever. And your job is sat on a chair all night in a, in a hotel room or in a hotel corridor, and you say to people, "Do that job to the best of your ability. Put a smile on your face. Be bright and breezy. Um, someone's going to spot you. Someone's going to spot you, and then then you you know." breaks can come your way they may not but you've got you've got a better chance of breaks coming your way by buying by being very very good at what you do because i think there's enough people out there um that identify skilling people and that could be a barrister uh, a barista sorry in your in your in your local coffee shop you know there's the there's the upbeat ones there's the fun ones there's the good ones uh, maybe working their way through college or whatever um and you can tell that person's going to make it. That person's going to get on. Then you've got the, the dour, grumpy guy or, um, you know, 10, 15 years older or whatever. And so I think whatever you're doing, you know, be good at it. And then hopefully you, you stand more chance of getting a break. Or if you're an entrepreneur, work hard at it, believe in what you do. And then, you know, you increase the chances of success coming your way. You know, I love that example. Um, somebody we just had on the show, he was, he was running a hotel in California and he was running it as well as he could. And one of his guests was this billionaire, Sid Bass, who ended up buying the largest stake in Disney Corporation and brought Fred with him. And, and he ended up a senior executive Disney because of how he was doing his hotel job. And just yeah, living proof, yeah. exactly what you're talking about. Of, I, th I think those stories are great. I mean, you you, sometimes you think, if I, if I ran a, I don't know what, a, any type of business, if I was running a taxi business, I'd hire this guy. You know, this guy just went a little, you know, a little bit over and beyond. And um, I was in, oh, oh Jess, you remember this one from the blog, actually. I was in Uber in Nairobi recently. You know, <laughs> yeah. Uber. Uber's now spread to Nairobi. And the guy, the driver, was like uh, evangelical about this this Kenyan guy, about Uber. And we had a couple of young Americans there on the startup. Um, 
and you know, it used to be years ago, what would uh, what would Google do? Now I think it's now what would Uber do? And um, you know, this guy had been had been well trained. He was passionate about the brand, the company, his role, and he was getting paid on time and didn't have a, didn't have a, didn't have a bad thing to say. And, and I thought, yeah, that's exactly the sort of guy I would hire. And you see these people all the time. So yeah, I think and your 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 thing there is a very very good example. Just just be good at what you do, whatever that is, whatever that skill is. Well, I I feel like you know again, I know I'm putting words in your mouth, but I feel like it's back to the message you brought up earlier about actions over words is that is that fair yeah no i i think we can all we can all talk a good talk i think i've talked quite a lot on, sh- on your show actually <laughs> <laughs> some of the answers have become a little bit long i do understand that um yeah but at the end of the day it's going to be it's, it's always about actions that's great well we appreciate you spending so much time with us here today and uh as always, uh, please come check out Mark's page on ideationcollective.com to get the links to his blogs and his business and, and everything else he's done. Thanks again for being on the show, Mark. Jess, it's been an absolute pleasure. Great to talk with you. And that's the show. Thanks for listening today. Again, if you're interested in the bonus materials that we will be producing, make sure to come to our website and join the Ideation Collective while it's still free. The website, iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. And as always, if you want to learn more about getting involved in helping the team rescue kids from traffickers, please visit iCollective.co slash child rescue. Now's the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at the Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details.